Amen. You can be seated. Take your Bible. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 11. Exodus chapter 11, we'll be looking at Exodus 11 as we continue. We're going to be looking at the total of uh, the first 20 chapters, not this morning, Uh, the first 20 chapters in the book of Exodus. You know, I've got to say this, I have a tease bone in me and I can't help it, I just, I got to do this. My man, John, I think we've got to take up an offering for some shoes. My brother's up here with no, no shoes or nothing on. You know, I was like, some must have been an accident out in that parking lot. I know, Lord knows we have enough geese out there that need to be avoided. But, but anyway, uh, caught my eye and could, had to say something. My mouth has always gotten me in trouble. Okay, before we do this, we want to give thanks for the Sluka family and the excitement and the birth of their new baby boy, Calvin Paul Sluka, born, I believe it was this past Friday, wasn't it? So we're excited for them, for Shane and for Dawn and their new baby, and so just remember to be in prayer for them. Um, remember, of course, Donna Loganow has been in the hospital now for six months and uh, twice has looked like she was going to be able to come home and the, an infection redeveloped. And so certainly we're burdened for her. We're thankful that her uh, faith, of course, is strong, but certainly hurt, not only for her, but for Randy and all of their family as they continue in a a very difficult stage and a, uh, a fiery kind of trial. But the prayer is still that it'll get, the infection will get cleaned up enough where they can get her home and she'll at least be home. We know that she longs to do that. So let's uh, just remember those two things, one in praise and then one for that the Lord would lift up Donna. Um, So let's get to Exodus chapter 11. We'll read the chapter. It's just 10 verses. It's one of the shorter ones that we've had so far in our study of the book of Exodus. Verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague will I bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here, When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt and in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord about midnight, I will go in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle. 
there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, so that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all of these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. That was Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Let's pray. Our Father, now as we open your word, as we've come, as we do as the church across the globe goes every Sunday, the first day of the week, to celebrate and to worship the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We pray this morning that your people would be built in the truth. God, for those who do not know Jesus, their hearts would be changed. We give you praise for another grace gift born to the Sluka family. We rejoice with them. We also weep, Lord, for the Loganau family as Donna continues to suffer in a hospital and ask, Lord, in accordance with your will as we submit her to your care, knowing, God, that you do things all good and well, that you will lift her up, that you carry the capacity to totally heal her. And yet we're thankful, God, through this difficult trial, her faith in you remains strong because we no, she belongs to Jesus. She has by faith received him. So be with Randy. Comfort him and give him strength. Him and along with the rest of all of their family. We pray for these things and we ask them in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Exodus 11 is kind of a bridge. We've gone through the nine plagues Actually, I believe they're strikes as we've seen them. Yahweh, that is, strike down all the varied Egyptian gods that they held to. And so when you're reading this chapter, um, the Exodus chapter 11, it's, it's really kind of a, a bridge from chapters 7 through 10 and those nine pl pl plagues to the 10th plague of Exodus chapter 12. And I really think that this chapter 11 is an extension of the conversation that Moses is having with Pharaoh. And then verse 10 is kind of a summation of all of those plagues when he says, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his out of his land. That's the final 
uh, summation of what has taken place before we're going to get into Exodus chapter 12. One of the things I think you want to bear in mind uh, when you're reading these section, there's certainly historical truth, but they don't necessarily go in chronological order. Of course, the plagues did, but the point is chapter 11, I think, is an extension of the same conversation that chapter 10 closes that Pastor Alex preaches on that leads us up to the Passover and then, of course, the deliverance of God's people from Egypt as God delivers them through his leader, um, Moses. And when, so when we get to chapter 12, we haven't, we've gone through whole chapters to this point. We're probably going to slow down because not only is this a historical narrative, but there are a number of uh, theological narratives that are important that we don't want to miss uh, that point us to Jesus in chapter 12 and then, of course, moving forward when we get ultimately to chapter 20, which is the giving of the Decalogue itself or the Ten Commandments. The point of Exodus chapter 11 this morning is that judgment is coming. It's a final judgment in this case on the nation of Egypt and over Pharaoh himself. You think about this when we get into this chapter today, how Moses' demeanor has changed. He's gone from a lack of confidence and, and even reluctance, right? He tries to get Yahweh not to send him personally. For whatever reason that was, God never responds to it, only that he's going to go and then he supplies him, of course, Aaron. But now he's a far more secure and confident leader. And I think that's because he's trusting in Yahweh and he's witnessing what Pharaoh has done in rejecting Yahweh's uh, calls to let the people go. This is why I think in uh, verse 8 there that he leaves Pharaoh this last time in hot anger. And we, and we know this, anger generally is just sinfulness. I, I don't think Moses' anger here is really tied to any of his own personal sinfulness. I think he's, he's sensing a righteousness in it. He's stunned. Though he's gone repeatedly to Pharaoh uh, to ask of Pharaoh to let God's people go, and Pharaoh continues to harden his own heart. Moses is literally witnessing Pharaoh get harder and harder. And so Exodus chapter 11, again, is kind of this bridge that where, where a final judgment is worn, the final strike against Pharaoh himself and the nation of Egypt. Judgment is a component of the gospel. Uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Hold your spot. Obviously, we're going to go back to Exodus 11. But judgment is a component of the gospel. We know other components of the gospel 
is that God is holy, that we are sinful, that Jesus is the only way to life in God, and those who reject Jesus will face Jesus in a final judgment. And so Moses literally is going to Pharaoh here to announce to him, and having shared it, him already knowing it, that God is going to judge Pharaoh, and he's going to do it. He's going to do it now in a final way. Though he has systematically, that is Yahweh, has systematically destroyed all of the various pluralistic gods that Egypt has given themselves to. The point as we look at this is that judgment is a component to the gospel. Those who reject Jesus will ultimately be condemned for eternal destruction. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 says it. It's an eternal punishment in hell for those who reject Christ. Follow this in Acts chapter 17. Look with me at verse um, 30. The times of ignorance God has overlooked. And what that, what that means is that God is really long-suffering towards humanity because the world has rejected Him and has gravitated to all kinds of gods that don't even exist. But now, He, that is God, commands all people everywhere to repent. Now here's the motivation that's given here. Because He, that is God, has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. That's His Son, Jesus. And of this, He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. The final judgment that's tied to Exodus chapter 11 simply is a shadow of the judgment that is going to come. God has fixed a day in history where Jesus once again will re-enter into this world. He will literally and bodily return, raise the dead, and judge both the living of the dead. And of course, in eternity, those who belong to Jesus will live in a new creation and a new heaven and a new earth. And those who reject Jesus will be condemned for all eternity in hell. God takes His word seriously. Certainly, obviously, we should take that serious. The world scoffs at that. The world scoffs about Christ is coming. An unredeemed world only picture God as a God of love. And of course, that love is distorted. So the question that I want to, first of all, look at before we dive into Exodus chapter 11, the first question is, is God fair to judge? Is God fair? Turn to Psalm chapter 96. Undoubtedly, if you get into any gospel conversation, 
people will pose questions who, you know, well, what about this part of the globe? Or what about that part of the globe? And what happens when you say that God is going through Christ judge the entire world, even parts of the globe uh, that are from throughout all the history of man? Is God fair to judge? I want you to see this. Uh, we're going to look at three different passages. Psalm chapter 96, verse 10. Say among the nations that the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established and it shall never be moved. Watch this. He, Christ, will judge the peoples with equity. In perfect righteousness, God will judge all of the peoples who have ever lived. Turn to chapter 98 of Psalm. Look at verse 9. Before the Lord, Lord in all caps, that in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word Yahweh, before the Lord, He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. Now here's the picture. On that final day, Christ will judge all of humanity. All of humanity. And it will be done according to God's perfect righteousness. So that no person who has ever lived will be without an excuse and they, as they stand before God. Turn to me to Romans chapter 1. One last text here as we make this point, is God fair? So that's Psalm 96.10, Psalm 98.9, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now this is what those who do not know God or reject God do. They take truth that God has revealed to them and though it's not received to them by faith, they suppress that truth in their own unrighteousness and sinfulness. For what, verse 19, can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. There's two identifiable witnesses that God reveals that He's real. First of all, because man has been created in the image of God, there's thoughts that there's something out there in God. So one's own conscience, right? People go, no, they can't just murder people or go out and steal. There's this sense of guilt. So God's witness on humanity is conscience. And then, of course, it's also creation itself and what God has done in creation. For although they knew God, I'm sorry, let's go back to verse 20. For his invisible 
attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived. Notice this. Ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. On the day of judgment, no one is going to stand before God with an excuse that they didn't take God. No one will do that because he judges the world in perfect equity. And you might be sitting here wondering, how in the world does that happen? I can't explain that, but that is exactly what will take place. That God reveals himself to all of humanity to some extent or another. Now, that revelation in terms of how he discloses himself to people is not alone to save. That's why we want to take the gospel to the world. The gospel is God's message in the person of Jesus Christ is the only thing that will save, will save a person. But on that final day of judgment, no one will look at God on that day of judgment in Christ and say, God, you were not fair. They will absolutely bow their knees. Isaiah and Philippians say through the Apostle Paul, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And you'll, all of humanity will face Him in one of, one of two ways. You'll face Christ as your judge, or you'll face Christ as your Savior. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 11. The point is about Exodus chapter 11, the point is for us today, is that judgment, dear friends, is going to come. Though the world scoffs at it, Judgment is going to come. Now I want us to move through Exodus chapter 11 in three days. I'm going to ask three questions to this in three ways. Okay, The first question is, who is God? The second question, will God judge? And the third question is, is God wrong? Who is God? Will God judge? Is God wrong? Back to... Exodus chapter 11. Now, this is what we've seen so far in the nine plagues and looking at the warning of the final plague. The Egyptians have worshipped a, a number of pluralistic gods, even at times where those of their pluralistic gods are, you know, they conflict in who they worshipped. We know that from the plagues, or better yet, the strikes, that those strikes are not random. God does not do anything randomly. He decrees things. He has purposes in things. He is executing His will in the world. God is not the author of confusion. He's working all things in the history of the world to an eschatological date when Jesus will return. We think of these first nine plagues and you're thinking about Egypt in terms of what they've endured and the hardness of who Pharaoh is. Think of the devastation. This was the greatest power in the history of the world at the time 
and Yahweh has systematically destroyed all the figment of their imagination in these varied gods. They're destroyed economically. The land itself is devastated. And now comes the plague of all plagues. The killing of the firstborn. The last two plagues we know are a picture of the darkness that overcame Egypt. And then of course, death. In a redemptive way, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? Because when Jesus was on the cross, the earth went dark for three hours. And then He ultimately died. So His people would not have to face the second death. The Egyptians believed that Re or Ra was the sun god. And that sun god was the father to Pharaoh. So Ra or Re, whichever way you want to pronounce it, because it's pronounced as both, R-E or R-R-A, he was worshipped as the father to Pharaoh, as deity. Pharaoh himself to the Egyptian people was thought to be God. And then his rightful heir to deity would be his son. There's a trilogy there. Re, the sun god, father to Pharaoh. Pharaoh believed that he was God. The son who would be born to him was seen as a rightful deity and had a right to the kingship of Egypt. But Yahweh is God. God is God. Father, Son, and Spirit. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 8 through 10 says, There is none beside God. Church, God has no peer. There's God who is creator, who is other, and everything else is creation. God has no peer. There's no fight. Even in the resistance, when Christ returns, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he, it, it's, it's not a war of sorts. It's a, it's a picture of devastation to those who reject Jesus. There is no other God. Only the God of Scripture exists. It was Yahweh who created the Son that they worshipped. It was Yahweh who gave Pharaoh himself life. Look at what Yahweh tells Moses he's going to do. Verse 1. Yet one more plague I will bring on Pharaoh. Verse 3. Jump down to verse 3. And the Lord gave the people favor. Yahweh again moves on behalf of his people. Verse 4, So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go in the midst. This was Yahweh himself striking the final last plague, the killing of the firstborn. He says, I will go out. He's going to exact his judgment. Pharaoh continues to hard his heart against repentance. And of course, 
We know if God's people are going to be delivered, it's going to happen by Yahweh himself. Even as Jonah chapter 2 verse 9 says, salvation is of the Lord. It's of the Lord. So when the question is, who is God? There's only one God. There's only one God that's to be worshipped. There's only one God that exists. Father, Son, and Spirit. The second question to this in chapter 11 is, will God judge? Will God judge? Why did God use ten strikes? Well, as we've seen along the way, he used the ten strikes to strike down the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. But we want to be clear about this on how the scripture describes itself. Those strikes weren't natural phenomenon. They were the acts of judgment by Yahweh. Does God judge? And why does God judge? Will God judge? He judges to vindicate that he is God and that he's going to pour out wrath against all sin. Will God judge and does God judge as yes because he reveals his glory and who he is to be merciful and to save according to Romans chapter 9 verse 17. And yet in all of this, just on the final day, the day of judgment, no person created in the image of God will stand before God having not had the opportunity to repent. And they will face God in Christ, of course, on that day without excuse. Time and time again, Pharaoh has this opportunity and yet he refuses. Moses is in front of Pharaoh here and he's letting him know that judgment is certain. Judgment is fixed. And nothing is going to stop it. Dear friends, in the perception of the world, of the world being delayed, judgment is coming to the world. The day, according to Acts chapter 17, is fixed by God. It's certain. There's going to be nothing to stop it. And Yahweh, as he warns the nation of, of Egypt and Pharaoh himself, also the world and the preaching of the gospel through the church, is warned that a final judgment is coming for all of us to stand before God. Look at chapter 4 of Exodus. Yahweh told Moses this was going to happen. You'll recall this when we were in Exodus chapter 4. Look at verse 21. And then the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do for, before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I'll harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel, my firstborn, I say to you, let my son uh, go that he may serve me if you refuse to let him go watch this behold I will kill your firstborn 
God's firstborn, as it's described here, was the nation Israel, was saved through the death of Pharaoh's son. Again, a picture of the salvation of God's people, Israel, points us forward to the salvation of God's church through Jesus. God's elect are saved by God's true son, Jesus. His only son, Jesus, who is the true Israel. Christ himself took the judgment of every sin that you would ever commit if you belong to him upon himself. Jesus suffered on the cross and when the earth went into darkness, Jesus died. So that the church, you and I, would never face the second death. There's actually kind of a double prophecy there. Because when Jesus is born, the angel of the Lord tells Joseph and Mary to go into Egypt, where God's own son was to get away. Why? Because there was a wicked King Herod who was killing the firstborn of Hebrew children. And once that passed, Jesus came out of Egypt, of course, who would live and die for us, for the salvation of God's people. Again, once again, there's a picture of what God would do in the future. Will God judge? The point is, He will judge. All sin will be judged. There's not one sin that anyone who ever commits in word, thought, and deed in the history of the world that will not be judged on the final day of judgment. Now as it pertains to Egypt and Pharaoh, is God wrong? Is God wrong to judge? And I want to give you six things real quick and we'll wrap this up. Is God wrong? Turn back to Exodus chapter 1. Remember this when you're thinking about this judgment that we're going to look at in chapter 12 to be delivered, Pharaoh is the one that chose this. Exodus chapter 1, verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sephora and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on their birth stool, if it is a son... You shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. Pharaoh chose this. Pharaoh sought the genocide of the Hebrew people. And so, when Yahweh moves into Egypt and exacts this final judgment, the, the, the plague of all plagues, it really is a punishment that fits the crime. So, number one... Pharaoh chose this. And you want to remember that. Is God wrong? The answer, of course, would be no. Because Pharaoh brought this on himself. Secondly, and this is very important for all of us who are parents and grandparents alike. Sins oftentimes follow the sins of the parents. 
sins oftentimes follow, the sins of the parents. We're not going to belabor this point because Pastor Alex went through this last week. And so the Egyptian people are bearing out the destruction of what their parents followed. I think there's good wisdom in that for us in parents and how we want to lead. Who we want to point our children to. The only one who can save. One of the most humbling things you can see as a parent is to see your sin lived out in your children. The sins of the parents is the second thing that the context would give us because this is what, in fact, the Egyptians did. Thirdly, turn to Romans chapter 5. Is God wrong? And the answer, of course, again would be no because of the fall of man. Romans chapter 5. The fall of man is proof that no one is innocent. All of humanity fell when Adam fell. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that was Adam's cosmic rebellion against his creator, what was the result of that? Death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. Is God wrong? No, because no one is innocent. Nobody's innocent. The proof of that is that people die and they die because of their sin. The truth of that is found every seven seconds on the globe someone passes and someone dies to verify the truth of Scripture. The truth being no one's innocent. There is no one that's innocent. Scripture tells us that we are born in sin. Psalm chapter 51 verse 5 and Psalm 58 verse 3. Number four is this. This is very important. Those who acted in faith avoided death. Go to back to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. Those who acted in faith avoided death. For those families that sacrificed the lamb without blemish and applied the blood on the doorpost and over the top of the door... They were spared, and they were saved. We'll see this in the, in the weeks to come. But here's what I want you to notice about this. Look at Exodus chapter 12, verse 38. I'll read verse 37. This is when they're coming out. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men... And then, of course, they had, besides women and children, most scholars believe that was probably around 2 million people. But that's not the only ones. Verse 38, a mixed multitude also went up with them. And when he's talking about a mixed multitude, he's not talking about God's Hebrew people. Those would have been seen as one. The men, the women, and their children. 
It means that there were others that would go out with them. Those who acted in faith to Yahweh avoided death. And so it's true today. Those who act in faith to Jesus will avoid the second death. Number five to this. There's some things in life that are worse than death. This was true even for the nation of Egypt. There's some things in life that are worse than even death. You know what that is? To face the second death. We will all die in all likelihood once. Why? Because we're sinners. We'll all face Christ in the judgment as a judge or as a savior. The only one who avoid the second death are those who act in faith to Jesus. Number six, and this is the last thing before we move to a close. Is God wrong? Of course, the answer is no, because God is God. And in Him is no sin. No sin. Just perfect righteousness who will execute perfect judgment. Church, a final judgment is coming for Christ. Every last sin will be held accountable. You say, well, what must I do? The only response to the gospel is to repent and to believe. Because all of sin will be judged. For the church, it's going to be judged because it was judged on Christ. Christ took the wrath or else, if you reject Jesus, you're going to face Christ to be held accountable for all of your sin. Will you face Him as a Savior? Or will you face Him as your judge? The only difference is, to avoid the second death, you must repent and believe the gospel. What does it mean to repent? It means to acknowledge that God's word is true, that God is holy, and that you are, you are a sinner. Not that you just do some accidents, but that you are a sinner in need of God's mercy. Whereas when the gospel message penetrates your heart and mind, you are turned to apprehend the mercy that is only found in Christ. You must repent of your sin. You must believe. What does belief mean? It bears three things. Number one is knowledge. You, anyone who ever becomes a Christian who's a part of the church has the knowledge of the gospel in its components that God is holy, that we are sinful, and that Jesus is the only way to salvation. You must believe what the Bible says about who God is, who you are, and what the way of salvation is true. You need the knowledge of the gospel to become a Christian. Once you have that knowledge, you must assent to them in your mind that those things are true, what the Bible says about God, what it says about you, and what it says about Christ. But those two components of knowledge and assent 
must sum up in the last thing that's most important. You must trust in Christ alone. You must rest in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for the salvation of your sin. And then on that final day, you will see Jesus as your Savior. To do anything else and to avoid Christ is to face Jesus as your judge. People, do not harden your heart. Trust in Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful, Lord God, that you're long-suffering, that you reveal yourself to people. We know and believe that on the final day of judgment, no one will hold to an excuse for their rejection of you. We're thankful Dear God, that you saved us, not of our own volition, but by your grace, you awakened our hearts to grant us repentance and to believe and to trust in and to receive Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for the payment of our sin. There, the gospel is the church's hope. It's the hope of our salvation. God, we humbly recognize that a final day of judgment is coming. We didn't, of our own part, presume that it's going to happen today. Don't know if it'll happen in a hundred years or a thousand years, but it is going to happen because you've promised that you're going to send Jesus, Heavenly Father, and that you have fixed a day in history when you will judge all the living and the dead by your own righteousness. Our prayer this morning is for anyone who has rejected you to acknowledge their sin and to trust in Christ alone to save them. For the church who is being built in the truth, may we leave this place, Lord, knowing and living our lives in light of the fact the final day of judgment is coming. To use it as a day, that final day of motivation to live for you and to love you because you have graciously saved us. We give you thanks for your salvation. And we pray for these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.